0: All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories number 35 for February 2022. Ira D. Augustine Reed, Denny Hoggard Jr., Marion Stokes, and Joseph Beam, four black trailblazers. cemetery is a national historic landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 It remains a popular visiting spot for tens of thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Bala Kinwood, was founded in 1869. It has a history and a population of its own. I am Joe Lex, a retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia, and volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery, and volunteer podcaster. Ira Augustine Reed was one of the top sociologists in the country in the late 1940s, but because of his scholarship, he got swept up in the Red Scare of the mid-20th century. Denny Hoggard Jr. of West Philadelphia was a tight end at Penn State who helped to integrate the Cotton Bowl in Dallas on New Year's Day of 1948. Marion Stokes had an obsession to videotape every cable news program on television, and she did so for almost 35 years, amassing a treasure trove of history. And Joseph Beam could not find any literature by black gay men like himself, so he put together a best-selling anthology. These four found their final resting place at West Laurel Hill Cemetery in Balla kinwood I will tell their Stories in this month's edition of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories. Four Black Trailblazers. Imagine spending 20 years of your academic career establishing yourself as one of the premier sociologists in the country you are a tenured professor at a respected east coast liberal arts college and you've been appointed department chair you've published dozens of articles books and chapters concerning many aspects of african-american life and then you get a letter from the government asking you to surrender your passport as it appears that you have been associated with several organizations on the attorney general's list of subversive organizations this was what happened to Haverford University's Ira de Augustine Reed during the Red Scare that washed over the country in the late 1940s and 1950s. Now, according to Wikipedia, and a couple of informal short biographies that I've read, Ira D. Augustine Reed was born in Clifton Forge, Virginia, on 2 July 1901, to Baptist minister Daniel Augustine Reed and Willie Roberta James. But the marriage license issued in 1925 and the draft registration card issued in 1941 both of which were filled in by him, gave his year of birth as 1897. Shortly after his birth, his family moved to Pennsylvania, and Ira attended integrated public schools in Harrisburg and Germantown. When he was 16 his father accepted a pastorate position in Savannah, Georgia. Now at that time there were no public high schools for African Americans in Georgia. So he enrolled in Morehouse Academy, and then continued to Morehouse College when he graduated. Morehouse had been founded in 1867, just two years after the Civil War, as the Augusta Institute. It was one of several organizations started to educate recently freed enslaved people in the South. Ira attempted to join the colored officers training camp in Iowa in 1917. But he ended up being conscripted for service in Georgia. After completing his military service, he went back to Morehouse College and received his B.A. in 1922. He spent the next two years teaching sociology and history and directed the high school at Texas College in Tyler, Texas. In the summer of 1923, he took sociology courses from the University of Chicago. And during the 1923-24 school year, he taught social science at Douglas High School in Huntington, West Virginia. He was then selected as a National Urban League Fellow. The League had been established in New York City in nineteen ten as the Committee on Urban Conditions among Negroes. After joining with other organizations, it took its present name in nineteen twenty. The mission of the Urban League movement is to, quote, enable African Americans to secure economic self-reliance, parity, power, and civil rights. End quote. In 1925, Ira received his master's degree in social economics from the University of Pittsburgh, and he married Gladys Russell Scott, a teacher from Xenia, Ohio. They adopted a child, and Ira continued working on his academic career. After completing his Urban League fellowship, Reed served as industrial secretary of the New York Urban League from 1925 to 1928, all the while surveying living conditions of low-income Harlem African-American families. Over the next several years, he published numerous scholarly articles, book chapters, and books while working on his doctoral degree, which he obtained from Columbia University in 1929. His thesis was on the Negro immigrant, his background, characteristics, and social adjustment. Reed was appointed to a professorship of sociology at Atlanta University in 1934. He was hired by the department chair, W.E.B. Du Bois, who later called him the best trained young Negro in sociology today. Atlanta University was founded in September 1865, just a few months after the end of the Civil War. It was the first historic black college or university, HBCU, in the southern United States. It was the nation's first graduate institution in the nation to award degrees to African Americans and the first to award bachelor's degrees to African Americans in the South. Du Bois had taken over as professor of history and economics in 1897 after leaving Philadelphia, where he had been researching his classic 1899 work, The Philadelphia Negro. Now, During his time at Atlanta, Reed was the founding director of the People's College, an adult education program. When Du Bois was forced to retire in 1944, Reed served as chair of the sociology department and editor from 1944 to 1948 of the journal Phylon, the Atlanta University Review of Race and Culture. Reed then spent one year as a visiting professor of educational psychology in New York University's School of Education. He became the first black full-time faculty member at a white northern university during this time of separate but equal. And from 1947 to 1950, he was assistant editor for the American Sociological Review. Haverford University, along the Philadelphia mainline, invited him as a visiting professor in 1946-47. Haverford is a private liberal arts college. It was founded in 1833 by members of the Religious Society of Friends, Quakers. They started accepting non-Quaker students in 1849. After Reed's visiting professorship he was invited to become chair of the Department of Sociology and Anthropology, one of the first faculty in the North to be recruited from a traditional black college in the South. The Haverford environment apparently affected him greatly as both he and his wife joined the Society of Friends in 1950. Reed was well over six feet tall trim and bald. He wore a small, neatly trimmed mustache and rimless spectacles, and he invariably dressed in a conservative three-piece suit. He dominated the classroom. Like any good teacher, he was a performer. His impressive biting intelligence was acknowledged by all, but not always appreciated. So Ira Augustine Reed seemed to have it made, a respected academic at a liberal arts college in Pennsylvania, assistant editor of a respected scholarly journal, a loving family and loving students, but Igloso, the attorney general's list of subversive organizations, caught him in 1952. In 1941, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's attorney general, Francis Biddle of the Philadelphia Biddles, began tracking what he felt were Soviet-controlled subversive front organizations. There were 11 of them. By the time of the Truman administration, Attorney General Tom Clark's list had ballooned to 51 organizations with innocent-sounding names like American League for Peace and Democracy, American Youth for Democracy, the Council on African Affairs, the National Negro Congress, the Philadelphia School on Social Sciences and Art, and veterans of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, the original so-called PAFs, or premature anti-fascists. In 1952, Ira Reed was asked to surrender his passport because of suspicions that he harbored communist sympathies. Someone had finked him out to the government. Reed started a long, tedious correspondence with the government, which informed him that he had been connected with many organizations on the list, including American Police Mobilization, the American Committee for the Protection of the Foreign Born, the American League Against War and Fascism, the National Federation for Constitutional Liberties, the Southern Negro Youth Congress, the National Council of Arts, Sciences, and Professions, and several others. Reed meticulously responded to each and every point. For example, on 14 December 1952, he wrote, The only associations I can recall ever having with the American Committee for the Protection of the Foreign Born were during the period 1930 to 34 when I was writing my doctoral dissertation on the problem of West Indian immigration. I was referred to that organization by the Bureau of Immigration of the Department of Labor. I had no reason for believing or any occasion for discovering or determining the communistic nature of the organization while I was collecting and analyzing the qualitative and quantitative data that organization made available to me. He sent a notarized affidavit to the Secretary of State. It stated, I do not support the World Communist Movement of which the Communist Party is an integral unit and that I have never supported such a movement. I am not now and have never been a member of the Communist Party. I am not going abroad for the purposes of, have never gone abroad for the purposes of, and have never been asked to go abroad for the purposes of engaging in activities which will advance the Communist Movement. He then explained how each of his four passports had been used either for vacation or research. In 1954, he got his passport back, but for many, his reputation was sullied simply by being investigated. Gladys died in 1956. She's buried in Ohio. Reed remarried to Anna M. Cook in 1958. She outlived him by almost 30 years. While his academic output diminished, he was a well-loved teacher and administrator at Haverford, a university where 99% of the students and 60% of the faculty live on campus together. He also wrote regularly for publications such as The Nation, Opportunity, and Virginia Quarterly. Reed had a profound impact on Haverford students. Yearbooks describe him as an, quote, impressive stature, both physically and intellectually. And they say he makes sociology not only a vocabulary exercise, but a vital experience. In a 2016 op-ed in the Baltimore Sun, Haverford College alumnus and former United States attorney for the District of Maryland, Stephen H. Sachs, wrote of Reed as a professor, Quote, Ira Reed's sociology course was by far the most stimulating of the year. Part provocative lecturer, part maestro of the Socratic method, he introduced us to the irreconcilable worlds of heredity and environment. He confronted us with the iconic works of the anthropologist Margaret Mead, and he challenged us to write an essay on the subject of blood will tell, End quote. In honor of his scholarship teaching and contributions to peace and justice in the United States and abroad, Reed received honorary doctorates from Haverford and Morehouse. He retired in 1966. Ira de Augustine Reed died from emphysema and cancer on 15 August 1968. His remains were consigned to earth at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. That means no marker, no official place to visit. Haverford College's Black Cultural Center is named for Reed it was rededicated in February of 2013. There's also currently an Ira de Augustine Reed intern at Haverford who's working on a full biography. The New York Public Library's Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, Manuscripts, Archives, and Rare Books Division maintains a collection of Reed's unpublished writings and correspondence. Ira de Augustine Reed, one of our black trailblazers. My first visit to Penn State University was only a few years ago. My youngest nephew, Eric, a fine short reliever with a wicked fastball, was a late round draft pick out of college for the St. Louis Cardinals. He was assigned to the State College Spikes, whose baseball home medlar field is next to and shares a parking lot with the massive Beaver Stadium. It holds more than 106,000 fans. I remember that driving up to the stadium felt very similar to entering Yosemite National Park from the south and encountering El Capitan for the first time. I felt very small and insignificant, and felt that I could only speak in whispers. The Penn State Nittany Lions football team was established in 1887. After more than a century of independent play, they joined the Big Ten in 1993. They've played in 50 postseason college bowl games and had 13 undefeated seasons. One of the years when they combined both feats was 1947, when they went 9-0 and they outscored their opponents 319 to 27. They were invited to the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, Texas to play Southern Methodist University. The five original college football bowl games were the Rose Bowl, annual since 1916 in Pasadena, California, the Orange Bowl since 1935 in Miami, Florida, the Sugar Bowl, also since 1935 in New Orleans. The Sun Bowl since 1935 in El Paso, Texas, and the Cotton Bowl since 1937 in Dallas, Texas. Others were added along the way until currently there are more than 40 bowl games every year, including the Dukes-Mayo Bowl and the Gasparilla Bowl. January 1st, 1948 would be the Nittany Lions' second bowl game ever. Their first had been in Pasadena in 1923 when they lost to the University of Southern California Trojans 14-3 in the 9th Rose Bowl. The first black players at Penn State were the Alston brothers, Dave and Harry from Midland, Pennsylvania, a steel-producing borough along the Ohio River in Beaver County. It was 1941, just before the United States entered the war. Dave Alston was one of the top high school football players in the country. He wanted to play at Penn State, and his brother Harry, a decent player, tagged along. They both played freshman football. In 1941, freshmen did not play on the varsity team. Dave Alston tore up the opposition and was predicted by Esquire Magazine to be sophomore of the year prior to the 1942 season. As a fast, exceptionally accurate passer who could also kick the ball 60 yards, Dave was destined for stardom. But on 15 August 1942, the 20-year-old pre-medical student died of massive pulmonary embolism after a routine tonsillectomy And his brother quit school shortly after that. In West Philadelphia, a 17-year-old Overbrook High School track and field star, Denny Hoggard Jr., read about Alston in Collier's Magazine when his picture was on the cover. Denny decided that State College was where he wanted to play football, even if he wasn't quite sure where Penn State was located. He thought it was somewhere out near Villanova. Denny Hoggard Jr. was born to Denny Sr. and Isabel E. Hoggard on July 12, 1925 in Elizabeth City, New Jersey. His father was a well-known politically active preacher who had come up from North Carolina in the Great Migration and a few years later moved to West Philadelphia, 558 North 58th Street. He became pastor of the Mount Carmel Baptist Church at 5732 Race Street, and he remained in that position for the rest of his life. Denny Jr. was the oldest of three children. His sisters were Olga and Phyllis. Denny was an excellent athlete at Overbrook, a two-time public high school champion in the broad jump and the hop, step, and jump. When he showed up for college that fall, he was one of six black students on campus and the only black player on the football team. Four of the students lived together in a rooming house that was run by a campus cook and his family. It was not easy being one of the few black students on a major college campus in the early 1940s. Many restaurants would not even serve people of color. The barbershops made the excuse, we don't know how to cut Negro hair. So the students had to travel to Tyrone, 25 miles away, for a haircut. Then he spent a year at Penn State, and then he dropped out and enlisted in the U.S. Army on 14 October 1943. After spending 30 months at an air transport command base in the heart of India, he received his honorable discharge on 18 March 1946, and he headed back to Penn State and football for the 1946 season as a 21-year-old sophomore. He intended to take pre-law courses and eventually join his father in politics. His father had served in the Pennsylvania State Legislature from 1942 to 1946. This time, he was not the only black man on the team. Wallace Triplett, known as Wally, was the son of a postal worker from the black suburban enclave of Lamont, Pennsylvania. Wally had graduated from Cheltenham High School, which years later produced baseball star Reggie Jackson. His accomplishments were such that he was offered a scholarship, sight unseen, by the University of Miami. He wrote the university a polite letter asking if they knew he was black. Miami quickly apologized and rescinded their offer. Instead, he took a senatorial scholarship to Penn State starting the fall of 1945. He and Denny started the 1946 season together as sophomores. Coincidentally, the Nittany Lions were scheduled to play Miami that fall, the same team that had offered Triplett a scholarship before discovering that he was black. Miami told them they were welcome to come if they left their black players back up north. There was discussion of the players getting together to vote whether to go to Miami and leave Hoggard and Triplett behind. But team leader Steve Suey stopped everyone short. There will be no meeting. We are Penn State. The Lions canceled the game, and we are Penn State eventually became a rallying cry for the team. Incidentally, Steve Sui married the coach's daughter. They had three sons, including running back Matt Sui, was a teammate and soulmate of Walter Payton with the mid 1980s Super Bowl Shuffle Chicago Bears. Steve Suey is in the College Football Hall of Fame. In 1947, Penn State coach Bob Higgins was in his 18th season at State College and looking for a big year. The team played in what was called New Beaver Field, which they had occupied from 1909 to 1959. Three-quarters of his players were returnees from military service, making them three years older and generally bigger and stronger than the average college football player. They destroyed the competition that year, shutting out six of their nine opponents. On October 11th in the Polo Grounds in New York, Penn State completely humiliated Fordham University for the second year in a row with a score of 75 to nothing. They had defeated the Rams the previous year by a score of 68 to nothing. The Lions gained 404 yards rushing, 179 passing, and they tallied 40 points in the second quarter alone. Triplett scored two touchdowns in the fiasco. And by the third quarter, Coach Higgins was playing his third-string team. At the end of this perfect season, Penn State initially had nowhere to go. The postseason bowls, many of them in the Deep South, initially did not want to invite a team with a black starting player. Notre Dame finished number one, but did not play in bowl games at that time. Michigan finished number two. They were going to the Rose Bowl. Southern Methodist University in Dallas, using the magic of Doak Walker, was number three, with a record of nine wins, no losses, and one tie. There were other bowl games that year, but they were somewhat of a joke. There was the one-shot Great Lakes Bowl, which invited Villanova. The two-off Delta Bowl and Dixie Bowl... The Raisin Bowl, which lasted five seasons. And, of course, the Salad Bowl, which, believe it or not, went on for nine years. If you don't believe me, look it up. SMU coach Matty Bell wanted to show his team's power by playing the best team possible. Well, Michigan was going to the Rose Bowl. That meant Penn State was next. Bell realized that for it to be a fair match, SMU had to play the entire Penn State team so it was soon apparent that the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, Texas, was going to be integrated. He knew that his team would not have a problem with that. The city of Dallas, however, was another matter. Dallas newspapers talked about the presence of black players for weeks in advance of the game. Even so, no Dallas hotel would allow the integrated team to stay with them. So the team took up residence at the Grand Prairie Naval Air Station 14 miles outside of Dallas. This was exactly the last place that a bunch of ex-GIs wanted to be. They were back sleeping in a barracks with typical bland generic military food, and many of the players started deserting the barracks at night in search of some nightlife. The black players? They didn't have to worry. The black community of Dallas had been reading about their arrival in black newspapers. Someone sent a limousine out to Grand Prairie to bring them into the city. They were treated like royalty at dinners, house parties, and dances. There was even a story about Denny and Wally heading to a new nightclub in town where they were met at the door by the owner who'd recently moved to Dallas from Chicago. He said, son... We never had no N-word in here, but we'd love to have you. Because truth is stranger than fiction, the club was the carousel, and of course the manager was Jack Ruby. January 1st, 1948 was a blustery day at the stadium at the Dallas State Fairgrounds. The game was played on a firm field in bright 35-degree weather before a capacity crowd of 47,000. A 25-mile-an-hour wind whipped from the northwest lengthwise across the field, which carried racist taunts from all over the stadium, even from the sports writers. But it was a clean game from start to finish. All-American tailback Doak Walker of SMU celebrated his 21st birthday by running for 59 yards and catching five of nine passes for 69 yards. He scored one touchdown, passed for another, and kicked an extra point. With 45 seconds to go in the second quarter, the Lions got back into the game. Using Denny as a decoy, 145-pound halfback Elwood Petchel tossed a 37-yard fourth-down pass to cornerback Larry Cooney. And the team's headed to the locker room at halftime, with SMU holding a tenuous 13-7 lead. Denny tells the story about what happened at halftime. Higgins came into the locker room and said, the game plan doesn't have to change. Our attitude has to change. If you fellows can go back to Pennsylvania with your heads up high, playing the way you played in the first half, then I don't want to know you. And he turned around and he left. And the assistant coaches, too. Penn State stormed out a changed team in the second half. With four minutes and 20 seconds left in the third quarter, Triplett lined up on the flank of a right formation on the five-yard line and snagged a pass from Petchel with no one laying a hand on him, and the game was tied at 13. But kicker Eddie Chikas, who later became the university athletic director, missed the extra point. The fourth quarter was fought in the trenches. Neither team could pull away, but Denny was getting playing time. Three seconds left on the clock. Penn State is on the Mustang 37-yard line. Denny Hoggard, who had been used as a decoy for most of the half, headed toward the end zone. As Petchel took the ball, ran laterally to the far sideline, leapt into the air and heaved the ball into the wind for Denny, who sprang up 40 yards away in the end zone as the final gun exploded. No movies exist of what happened, and written accounts vary. Byron Sam, later a Philadelphia broadcasting legend, was announcing the game that day on the radio. One observer said that Denny was by himself in the end zone. Another said Denny was fighting for the ball with two defenders, of whom one appeared to tip the ball and bat it away. Other eyewitnesses were divided in what they saw. Baisam announced to the listening audience that the ball bounced off Denny's chest. Denny says, the ball never touched me. It was tipped, and I think Wally was the one who tipped it. But in the end, the result was the same. Incomplete pass, and the game ended in a 13-13 tie. The first person to reach Hoggard was Doak Walker, who shook his hand enthusiastically, saying, Nice game. You almost won it. When Denny was interviewed after the game, he said, If God wanted me to catch it, I would have. Some people have questioned whether he intentionally dropped the ball for fear of what would happen to a black man who won the game of the year in Texas. In 1948, Penn State finished 7-1-1, one one, defeated, tied, and uninvited to a bowl game. It would be Bob Higgins' last Nittany Lions squad. Despite the taunts from the stands, the Nittany Lions all agreed that the game against Southern Methodist was the cleanest they had played all year. The legacy from this game was huge. In 1949, SMU invited Oregon, also an integrated team, to play in the Cotton Bowl. When Penn State next played in the South against Texas Christian University in 1954, they brought two of their scholarship players, Lenny Moore and Rosie Greer, and no one's feathers seemed to be ruffled. And SMU signed the Southwest Conference's first black player, Jerry LaVias, in 1965. Denny and Wally remain friends. Wally was drafted by the Detroit Lions in 1949. He was the first African-American draftee to take the field in an NFL league game. Ironically, one of his teammates was Doak Walker. On 29 October 1950, in a game against the Los Angeles Rams, Wally set an NFL record that stood for decades when he returned kickoffs and punts for 294 yards, including a 97-yard touchdown run in a 65-24 loss to the West Coast team. When Wally married in December 1950, Denny was his best man. After the 1950 season, Triplett was the first NFL player to be drafted in the Korean War. He spent the rest of his life in Detroit, and died there in 2018 at the age of 92. After winning the Heisman Trophy for his 1947 season, Doak Walker went on to a successful career in the pros, where he was Rookie of the Year and four-time First Team All-Pro. He is elected to both the College Football Hall of Fame and the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He died in 1998. Denny Hoggard Jr. finished his senior year at Penn State with letters in both track and field and in football. In his last college game against the Pitt Panthers, the third-string end grabbed a Pitt fumble in midair and romped over the goal line from 22 yards out. Denny quietly moved back to West Philadelphia. He never got his law degree. For many years, he worked as a probation officer before joining the Department of Public Assistance. He married and had three children, a son and two daughters. He was with the Board of Education for 30 years. In 1957, he opened a jewelry store in Philadelphia and was its owner and proprietor for the rest of his life. In 1968, Reverend Denny Sr. died at Mercy Douglas Hospital of Pneumonia and Prostate Cancer and was interred at Mount Lawn Cemetery in Sharon Hill, Delaware County, Pennsylvania. When he was interviewed for the book Lion Country, Inside Penn State Football by Frank Bolowski in 1982, Denny Hogger Jr. was living at Hopkinson House on Washington Square, one of the premier addresses in the city. Denny Hoggard, Jr. died on September 20th, 1985, at the age of 60, a widower. His obituary mentions his three children, as well as his two sisters who survived him. He was interred at West Laurel Hill Cemetery in the Garden of Memories section, plot 985. It's very close to the Belmont Avenue entrance. He has a standard brass military marker, staying Corporal, U.S. Army World War II, A scholarship fund has been established in his name at Penn State. I want to take a minute or two to tell you about some of the activities at the cemeteries. February is going to be a busy month for both virtual and in-person tours. Laurel Hill Cemetery on Ridge Avenue in Philadelphia has four in-person tours. There are hotspots and storied plots, general history tours, on Saturday, February 12th, and on Thursday, February 17th, both from 10 a.m. to noon. These are good introductory tours. If you've never been to the cemetery before, there is a themed tour, Till Death to His Part, Love Stories of Laurel Hill, on Saturday, February 12th from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. So you can actually catch two tours on the same day. Uh, That one, the um, Till Death to His Part, is with volunteer guide Gwen Kaminsky. Uh, She has been giving tours, excellent tours, at the cemetery for many years. And there's a walking tour with the arborist of Barks, Buds, and Berries Winter Tree Tour on Sunday, February 6th from 1 until 3 p.m. West Laurel Hill Cemetery in Ballack-Kinwood offers sacred spaces and storied places. That's a general history tour, introductory tour on Saturday, February 26th from 10 to 11.30 a.m. And there's a special themed tour for Valentine's Day on Sunday February 13th at 1 p.m. called All Thorns and No Roses. I have no idea what that's going to be about but it's Sarah Hamill and Rachel Walgamuth, so I know it's going to be great. If you are not ready for an in-person tour, take advantage. We've got three virtual tours and one virtual meeting coming up in February. You can join Arboretum Manager Aaron Greenberg via Zoom on Thursday, February 10th at 6.30 p.m. for Managing a Cemetery Arboretum. And again on Thursday, February 24th at 6.30 p.m. for Great Hardy Ferns for the Garden. And there's a Hotspots and Storied Plots virtual tour of Laurel Hill Cemetery on Wednesday, February 16th at 6.30 p.m., plus a virtual meeting of the Boneyard Bookworms on Tuesday, February 22nd from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Finally, there is a members-only in-person tour at West Laurel Hill for Black History Month, Sunday, February 20th, from 1 to 3 p.m. If you are not a member, maybe this will encourage you to join. For details of all of these tours, both live and virtual, see thelaurelhillcemetery.org slash events. Imagine a time when you wanted to settle an argument with someone and you did not have the reference source at home. You'd go to the library to consult a reference to prove your point. Imagine a time when if something were broadcast on the radio or television, that was probably the only time you would ever see it or hear it. Imagine a time when if you wanted to see a certain movie that had finished its run at the theater, you would have to patiently wait and hope it showed up on television at a time that you could watch it. If you wanted to hear a certain song, you waited for it to come on the radio, or you bought a copy to play whenever you liked at home. In other words, imagine a time of 50 or so years ago. I am in my mid-70s. I think back on those pre-internet times, and it's pretty mind-boggling. I used to marvel at the life led by my grandmother, who was born in 1890. She would tell stories of the first time she saw an automobile on the street Or she saw a plane fly overhead, and she knew that it was going to fly overhead because it had been announced in the newspaper that that was going to happen. Or the first time she went to a motion picture theater and saw a talking picture. This woman lived to see men on the moon. She lived through four major wars, massive upheavals in her beloved Catholic Church, the rise and fall of the Soviet Union, so much history. She died in 1991. Now, my memory stretches back to serial radio programs, a small black-and-white television set, 78 RPM records, 15-minute evening newscasts on a tiny television and a choice of four daily newspapers in Chicago. One of my early treasured gifts was a shirt pocket-sized transistor radio that allowed me to carry music with me. Of course, it was AM band only. I watched the rise and fall of 78 RPM records, 45 RPM records, reel-to-reel tape recorders, long playing records, 8-track tapes, cassettes, and then CDs. And now I live in a time when accessing music and movies takes seconds, and answering a question during a heated argument may be as simple as a few clicks on a small device in my pocket. Marion Stokes was a tech-savvy Philadelphian who realized that the collective memory could be short, and she decided to do something about it. She was a whip-smart woman loaded with contradictions. She was a card-carrying communist who tried to defect to Cuba, but she invested heavily in Apple Incorporated when it was $7 a share. And later in life, she had a full-time chauffeur, secretary, and caretaker. She was a huge believer in modern technology, yet she never sent a single email in her life. And through a visionary passion for recording everything she saw and didn't see on the television for 35 years, she supplied an irreplaceable reference for that period to the rest of mankind. She was born Marion Marguerite Butler in Germantown on the 25th of November, 1929, to Adolphus Butler, 1877 to 1952, and Lillian L. Jackson, 1877 to 1959. Her mother gave her up for adoption at a young age. She grew up during the Great Depression, and she learned to save everything. She attended Philadelphia High School for Girls and took a job at the Philadelphia Public Library as an archivist. Before she was out of her teens, she had married World War II Army veteran Benjamin James Freshly 1922 to 2003, who was born in South Carolina, and they lived in a row home at 1929 North 9th Street. They had no children and they separated after a few years. Freshly eventually remarried. He's buried at Marion Memorial Park in ballack under a simple military marker with a Star of David carved on it. Marion had a fierce intelligence and a radical agenda. Growing up as a black Philadelphia woman in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, she knew many kinds of discrimination firsthand. In 1960, she joined the activist group Fair Play for Cuba and became the Philadelphia Chapter Chair. FPFC was a national organization that provided grassroots support for the Cuban Revolution against attacks by the United States government once Fidel Castro began openly admitting his commitment to Marxism and began the expropriation and nationalization of Cuban assets belonging to U.S. corporations. Among its members were James Baldwin, Allen Ginsberg, Norman Mailer, Truman Capote, and presidential assassin Lee Harvey Oswald. Marion's political activities got her fired from her job at the library. During these early years of political activity, Marion met a Jewish radical named Melvin Medelitz, born in 1933, whom everyone calls Mickey. He was born in West Philadelphia. He studied education at Temple University, where he graduated in 1954. Mickey had only one vocal cord, so he spoke in a whisper. And he and Marion took a liking to one another. They married, and their son, Michael Metalitz was born a short time later in 1960. Together, they edited a progressive newspaper, The Independent Citizen. In the early 1960s, Marion and Mickey were at the heart of the civil rights movement in Philadelphia. And by 1963, they had become members of the Communist Party, which, of course, drew scrutiny from the Federal Bureau of Investigation. They helped arrange several buses to carry protesters to Washington, D.C. for the famed 1963 March on Washington, the site of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. They also joined the movement of another radical progressive, Cecil B. Moore, in integrating Girard College, a prep school founded in 1848 for the education of, quote, poor white male orphans, end quote. Girard had initially managed to skirt the Brown versus Board of Education ruling of 1954 as it was not part of the public school system in Philadelphia. Moore's aggressive manner and confrontational tactics alienated many leaders, both black and white, including many within the NAACP who preferred behind closed door negotiation over direct action. He was a fierce critic of established civil rights leaders in Philadelphia, including Raymond Pace Alexander. And he led a successful insurgency to take over the NAACP branch in 1963. With the activism of Moore, the Medellitzes, and others, Gerard College became integrated in 1968 and the first female was admitted in 1984. It was about this time that Marion and Mickey decided that in the best interest of the family they should defect to Cuba. After submitting their paperwork they took a long vacation in Mexico expecting to receive their visas from Cuba while they were there. The papers never came, and they returned to Philadelphia disappointed that their plan had failed. To stay politically active, Marion became a campaign worker for Lyndon Baines Johnson's 1964 presidential campaign. Drove around Philadelphia in a car with a speaker trying to get out the vote. Mickey and Marion broke up around this time, when Michael was four years old. She took Michael with her. Mickey went on to become a leader in the trade unions for peace in 1966, and during the 1968 presidential campaign, he worked to get the Peace and Freedom Party on the ballot, with Dick Gregory as the candidate for president, and Dr. Benjamin Spock as vice president. In 1988, Medlitz was the only white teacher at the Frederick C. Douglas School in Philadelphia, and was featured in a newspaper article as playing the role of Douglas because of his shock of white hair, and facial hair, and his physical resemblance to the great man. Medlitz also became a certified Magid, a Jewish folk teller, and recorded a live album called The Whispering Magid, which you can find on Amazon. In the meantime, Marion had become President Pro Tem of the Greater Philadelphia chapter of the newly established National Organization for Women, NOW, which was headquartered at 6830 Germantown Avenue. We're trying to remove the barriers to equal opportunity to women in employment, religion, politics, business, education, social life, you name it. You'll notice it's the National Organization for women and not of women. And it's not really a women's group. Another of the group leaders was Ernesta Drinker Ballard of Chestnut Hill, daughter of Henry and Sophie Drinker, and niece of Ernesta Drinker Barlow, whom I covered at length in Biographical Bites from Bala, West Laurel Hill Stories number three. Marion also became engaged in television. She saw the power of the medium to communicate and to mold opinion And she recognized that the Fairness Doctrine then in play would give her a voice she might otherwise never have as an ex-communist twice divorced black woman. At this time the Fairness Doctrine required holders of broadcast licenses to devote some of their airtime to discussing controversial matters of public interest and to air contrasting views regarding these matters. Stations were given wide latitude as to how to provide contrasting views. It could be done through news segments, public affairs shows, or editorials. The doctrine did not require equal time for opposing views, but required that contrasting viewpoints be presented. Most stations stuck these programs in the desert of Sunday mornings, and Philadelphia's WCAU Channel 10 was no exception. This show was called Input, and Marion was a frequent guest, eventually becoming co-producer with John Stockdale Stokes Jr., a wealthy gentleman from Chestnut Hill with a wife and five children. Marion was fearless in her discussions, especially with the white patriarchy. She explained why people in power did not take opinions from black people. Quote, that's what's wrong with black folks. We don't say it the right way. When another guest patronized her by talking about the power of the democratic process, she snapped back, if you want black folks to have faith in the democratic process, make it work. As you watch these snippets, you can literally see John Stoddell Stokes Jr. falling in love with her. They were misfits from opposite sides of the tracks. And they somehow found each other and they meshed perfectly. Stokes was the only son of John Stogdill Stokes Sr., a wealthy merchant and president of the Philadelphia Museum of Art from 1937 to 1947. John's mother's portrait was painted by Diego Rivera and this rendering is in the collection of the museum although it's not currently on display. John Jr. was raised a Quaker but had exposure to many different religions. When World War II broke out, he registered as a conscientious objector. In 1944, John refused to serve in the military and was sent to a civilian public service camp in Michigan to do reforestation and road maintenance. He deserted after 10 days and when captured, he was sentenced to 18 months at Danbury Federal Prison. Soon after his release in 1946, John was struck with the power of Catholicism in his garden, and he had a conversion to that faith. He married Helen Patricia Shriver in 1947. In 1951, he co-founded the organization Mary's Garden, which encouraged planting of flowers, especially marigolds, in honor of the Virgin Mother. It was during this time that he became active in civil rights and societal change efforts as director of the Wellsprings Ecumenical Center at Germantown Avenue and Johnson Street in Philadelphia. The television show Input was a direct result of this organization. It was here that he met Marion Medelitz and they fell in love. John divorced his wife of 25 years in 1972, moved out of his Chestnut Hill home, and married Marion the next year in New Hope, Pennsylvania, two days before Michael's 13th birthday. They eventually rented an apartment at the Barclay on Rittenhouse Square, one of the most exclusive addresses in the city. With her new husband's wealth, Marion voraciously bought and read books. It was not uncommon for her to spend $750 at a bookstore on a single visit. When a clerk would ask jokingly, Are you going to read all of those? her standard answer was, Do you think I can't read because I'm black? In 1975, she became obsessed with reruns of the 1960s television series Star Trek. It was her ideal world, a multiracial, multinational crew involved in exploration, not warfare. Later that year, she bought one of the first Betamax recorders on the market and started taping this show and others that appealed to her. Marion was suspicious of the power of television to inform or misinform people. She realized early in life how people could be manipulated by television. Her second husband, Mickey, said that, quote, she was extremely fearful that America could replicate Nazi Germany. When the Iran hostage crisis started in 1979, she noticed how the news shifted from day to day. For instance, early reports said that several of the hostages were CIA agents. Until later, they weren't. She worried when the initially neutral reporting gradually shifted to be totally anti-Iran. She determined that people would not remember this, so she decided to record the reports. In 1980, the 24-hour news cycle started with CNN, and she began recording everything that it broadcast. Soon, there was Fox News, and then C-SPAN, and she started recording them and she never stopped until the day she died. Sometimes Marian had as many as eight VCR machines running simultaneously to record what was being broadcast. Marian may not have trusted the news but she understood the power of technology to unlock people's potential. When personal computers like Tandy and Commodore came on the market, she developed an interest in the new technology. But it was Apple Inc. that truly captivated her fancy. Something about Steve Jobs being adopted made her identify with him. In fact, when Jobs died many years later, Marion chastised her son Mike. I'm surprised you didn't call me when Steve died. She started buying Apple products as soon as they came on the market, sometimes five or six at the same time. More importantly, she anticipated what Apple would become and started buying stock when it was $7 a share. And she encouraged her husband's wealth managers to do the same. Everyone made a ton of money. When one of her stepchildren was working as a reporter in New Orleans during the Hurricane Katrina disaster, Marion sent a pallet of hand-cranked radios to the area. Her video recording had become an obsession. She hired a secretary, a chauffeur, and a caregiver, all of whom became surrogate family. Soon they were helping switch the tapes out at the end of six- or eight-hour recording sessions. The tapes started to stack up. She subscribed to several daily newspapers and never threw any out. The magazines sometimes numbered more than a hundred every month. The Barclay apartment was filling rapidly. Marion and John became more reclusive as they aged together, content to sit in their chairs in front of two television sets, holding hands and watching the news. They became more dependent on their secretary and chauffeur for their daily needs. In those pre Amazon days, the two helpers would sometimes have to scour Philadelphia camera and discount stores for blank tapes. And she always insisted that the tapes be delivered in a black trash bag so no one could figure out what she was doing. She refused to use TiVo for the same reason other people might find out what she was doing. When they occasionally left the apartment for a meal out, they timed it so they would be back in time to change the tapes. And she got very upset if there was a gap in the information being recorded. In November 2007, John Stockdale Stokes Jr., age 87, died of pneumonia and congestive heart failure at Chestnut Hill Hospital after more than 34 years with Marion. He had never reconciled fully with his first family. He was interred in the South Lawn section of West Laurel Hills Cemetery, and Marion continued her recording project. Eventually, she had nine different houses in which to keep her collections. Marion spent the last several years of her life watching television in the living room of her Barclay apartment. Toward the end of her life, she contacted a few curators about what could be done with her stuff. And as soon as they pointed to the videotapes and said, well, those have to go, she dismissed them. She died on December 14th, 2012, of respiratory illness, probably caused by her long years of smoking. She was 83 years old. For the first time in more than 30 years, her son Michael went around the apartment and turned off the recorders and the television sets. The news unfolding that morning was the horror of a school shooting at Sandy Hook, New Jersey. But by now, most news networks had gotten wise and they were recording and archiving their own material electronically. Marion told Michael to find a good home for everything. There were thirty to 40,000 books, years and years of magazines and newspapers, and roughly 70,000 videotapes, an estimated 840,000 hours of material that had captured almost everything on television news from 1977 to 2012. If you were to watch eight hours a day, every day, it would take you 342 years to see it all. Together, the tapes weighed about 31 tons, a little more than a railroad freight car. And... There were the Apple products, which themselves took two weeks to catalog. The new in-the-box Apple equipment, including things like a Lisa 210, Macintosh 512K, Nubus PowerMax, a WorkGroup Server 7250, Emacs and IMAX of all styles, laptops including Macintosh portables, 68K PowerBooks, Clamshell iBooks, G4 PowerBooks, and even a Duo Dock. There was an original Macintosh 20-megabyte SCSI hard drive, quick-take cameras, laser printers, and monitors, like a radius color pivot display, an Apple 21-inch studio display, not to mention dozens and dozens of additional Macs and related gear. Collectors of early Apples were in heaven as this equipment was sold via auction. Michael found a home for the tapes at the Internet Archive, a digital library with the stated mission of universal access to all knowledge. They are hoarders at an institutional level. It cost $16,000 to ship four truckloads of tapes across country to the archives home in California and the transfer to digital started almost immediately. Hundreds of hours of the Stokes collection are already searchable and available for viewing. And there's no estimate when the project will end. It will probably take decades. The Internet Archive has also been digitizing the contents of 55 banker's boxes of her papers that include her personal journals, magazines, newspapers, civic organization pamphlets, leaflets, and handbills. Marion Marguerite Butler Freshly Metalit Stokes is buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery in the South Lawn section, lot 507, next to her beloved John. Her stone is polished granite with some carved flowers, and only their names and dates on view. Neither obituary mentioned a word about taping or Apple. Although Marians did remark with tongue firmly planted in cheek that, quote, she also enjoyed watching cable news shows, end quote. But the story got out, and in 2019, a documentary entitled Recorder, the Marion Stokes Project, was released. You can buy or rent from the usual sources, but as I am recording this, there is a copy for free on Vimeo. Marion Stokes, truly another black trailblazer. An early form of professional theater that originated in Italy was the Commedia dell'arte, exemplified by various exaggerated real characters with names that have come down to us hundreds of years later. Commedia dell'arte had four stock character groups. Il Capitano, the self-styled captains and the braggarts. Inamorati, the young upper-class lovers with names like Flavio and Isabella. Vecchi, the wealthy old men such as Il Dottore, the doctor. And Pantalone, who represented greed or money and Zanni, the servants and the clowns, like Arlecchino, better known now as Harlequin, Scopino, Pulsinella, Pedrolino, Pierrot, the sad clown, and Scaramuccia, who was often beaten by Harlequin for his boasting and his cowardice. One of the Zannis was named Maticino, a court jester who would speak truth to the king when nobody else would. The name was borrowed by early gay rights activists when they organized their first support group for gay men in Los Angeles in 1950. They called themselves the Metachine Society, and they were all white. In 1952, a Metachine Society discussion led to an organization called One Incorporated. It took its name from Victorian writer Thomas Carlyle's aphorism, A mystic bond of brotherhood makes all men one. One Inc. was the first LGBTQ organization in the United States to have its own office. In January 1953, One Inc. began publishing a monthly magazine simply called One. It was the first U.S. pro-gay publication. It sold openly for 25 cents on the streets of Los Angeles. It actually had a conservative political bent. It contained serious articles on subjects like politics, civil rights, legal issues, police harassment, employment, and family problems, as well as some romance stories, nearly all of which were about unrequited love and none of which depicted physical contact there were no pictures. Nothing in it was sexually explicit or even approached the boundaries of pornography. By 1954, the magazine's circulation had reached a respectable 2,000 subscribers. But in late 1954, the Los Angeles branch of the U.S. Postal Service refused to deliver the magazine. The straw that broke the camel's back was the October issue, which the postmaster declared was, quote, obscene, lewd, lascivious, and filthy and therefore unmailable under the Comstock laws. He objected to the short story Sappho Remembered, the tale of a lesbian's affection for a 20-year-old girl who gave up her boyfriend to live with the lesbian. The postmaster said that the story was quote, lustfully stimulating to the average homosexual reader, end quote. He said that a poem about homosexual cruising called Lord Samuel and Lord Montague contained filthy words and that an advertisement for The Circle, a Swiss magazine that contained homosexual pulp romance stories, would direct the reader to yet other obscene material. One Inc. fought back and brought a lawsuit, which made it to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1958. The Supreme Court reversed the lower court ruling and voted in favor of the magazine by a vote of 5 to 4, based on its recent landmark First Amendment case, Roth v. United States. In Roth, Justice William Brennan had written, all ideas, having even the slightest redeeming social importance, unorthodox ideas, controversial ideas, even ideas hateful to the prevailing climate of opinion, have the full protection of the guarantees of the First Amendment. Sex and obscenity are not synonymous. Quote. In its next issue, one told its readers, For the first time in American publishing history, a decision binding on every court now stands, affirming in effect that it is in no way proper to describe a love affair between two homosexuals as constituting obscenity. By protecting one, the Supreme Court had facilitated a flourishing of LGBTQ culture and literature and a sense of community developed at a time when the federal government was simultaneously purging its ranks of suspected homosexuals. At the heyday of the underground press in the 1960s, LGBTQ newsletters and publications were handed around from reader to reader. Starting in 1969, these publications started to find a home in independent brick-and-mortar bookstores, like the Oscar Wilde Bookshop in Manhattan, Lambda Rising in Washington, D.C., A Different Light in San Francisco, and Giovanni's Room in Philadelphia. Giovanni's Room took its name from the 1956 James Baldwin novel of the same name, which focused on the life of an American man living in Paris and his feelings and frustrations with his relationships with other men in his life. It fostered a broad public discourse of issues regarding same sex desire. In nineteen seventy three, three gay activist alliance members, Tom Wilson Weinberg, Dan Sherbo, and Bern Boyle, opened Giovanni's room at two hundred thirty two South Street. The store was closed shortly afterward due to a homophobic landlord. The store changed hands to lesbian activist Pat Hill in 1974 and then to Ed Hermans and Arlene Olsham in 1976. Hermance and Olshan moved the store first to 1426 Spruce Street and then to its final location on 12th and Pine in 1979. A young black man named Joseph Fairchild Beam joined the staff in the early 1980s. Beam was born to a working-class family in Philadelphia in 1954. His father, son Beam, was a bank security guard. His mother, Dorothy Beam, was born in Georgia and moved to Philadelphia as a young child. As a teen, Dorothy left high school to support her family when her mother had a stroke. She operated a sewing machine for the Army during the day, and took classes for her high school diploma at night. She later attended Cheney University and then Temple University, where she earned a master's degree in elementary education. She taught in Philadelphia public schools for two decades, including 15 years as a counselor son and Dorothy's only child Joseph was a quiet and serious child. He attended Malvern Preparatory School and St. Thomas More High School before moving to the Midwest to pursue a degree at Franklin College. Dorothy later bragged, he was not a fresh kid. He didn't stay on the corner like the rest of the boys and I thought, geez, I have a great son here. I had a lot of friends who were teachers. They had daughters who wanted to get married. So I tried to introduce my son, but he wasn't interested and I didn't know why. I figured he was going to college, would finish, and maybe later on select a girl to marry. While he was at Franklin, Beam was active in the Black Student Union and the school's radio program and the newspaper. But he was struggling with his own identity, especially his sexuality. He later wrote, In the winter of 79, in grad school in the hinterlands, I thought I was the first black gay man to have ever lived. I lived a guarded existence. I watched how I crossed my legs, held my cigarettes, the brightness of the colors I wore. I was sure that some effeminate action would alert the world to my homosexuality. Several years passed before I realized that my burden of shame could be a source of strength. And when Joe Beam was a student at Franklin College, he told his parents he was gay. His mother quickly accepted his announcement. I gave him the same amount of love. In fact, I gave him more support, she said. My husband was startled. He is still startled. Joe had a few affairs, but he never found a permanent partner. His mother ached because he was lonely. I used to say, Joe, if I knew anybody you would be compatible with, I would certainly talk to them. If there was anything I could have done to make him happy, I would have done it. First, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know how to approach anybody, and nobody had approached me. While working at Giovanni's room, Joe Beam looked around and wondered, where are the books by and about people who look like me? While stories about being in the life abounded from white men, he could find no anthologies of writings by and about gay black men. He had found his mission. He would edit an anthology of articles, short stories, interviews, and poems by black gay men. And he would call it In the Life. He placed an ad in the Philadelphia Gay News calling for black gay writers with the words, Visibility is survival. Throughout the 80s, Beam translated his passion and talent for the written word into positions with such LGBTQ publications as The Advocate, The Windy City Times, and Philadelphia Gay News, PGN. He interviewed such black gay icons as civil rights leader Bayard Rustin, poet Audre Lorde, and Afrofuturist Samuel Chip Delaney. Meanwhile, in June 1981, the Centers for Disease Control published an article in the MMWR about a cluster of five gay men in Los Angeles who had contracted pneumocystis carinii, a rare form of pneumonia. Then, an unexpected number of homosexual men developed a previously rare skin cancer called Kaposi's sarcoma. The term grid gay-related immune deficiency came to describe these oddities. PGN ran its first story regarding this outbreak in the July 10th through 23rd, 1981 issue under the headline, The Latest Gay Disease, Cancer. The term Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, AIDS, was used publicly for the first time in July 1982 during a community meeting in Washington, D.C. And the AIDS Task Force of Philadelphia was formed the next year. Young men were dying, and any treatment or cure was years away. Joseph Beam's first book, In the Life, was published in 1986, and Son and Dorothy attended the book signing in Philadelphia. He said his book spoke for the brothers whose silence has cost them their sanity, as well as the 2,500 brothers who have died of AIDS. In the introduction, he said, The bottom line is this. We are black men who are proudly gay. What we offer is our lives, our loves, our visions. We are coming home with our heads held up high. The book was a huge success and he started working on a second anthology. Beam also served as a board member of the National Coalition of Black Lesbians and Gays and a founding editor of Black Out Magazine, the first magazine specifically for the black LGBTQ community. In his editor's note in the second issue of Black Out, Fall 1986, Beam wrote about black pride and solidarity. He said the journal was part of a worldwide movement that will enliven and reshape the discussions of race, sex, gender, and class oppression. Our movement is one of liberation. Our vision is one that is dignified and inclusive. The progressive movement of black gays and lesbians is one into which we have been born. Ours is a birthright to struggle. Our sole decision is what part each of us will play within this new movement. Beam recognized that for black lesbians and gay men, even more than their white counterparts, being out was not an easy path. Writing, understandably, all of us cannot or will not carry placards proclaiming our sexuality in the workplace, at home, or in the streets. But there are other tasks to be done, indeed many ways to be an activist. But Dorothy noticed that things weren't right. Joe was losing weight. He told her, Mom, I'm eating enough. You just worry all the time. She did worry. He runs around like he's carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. He was always crabby. He was trying to be all things to all people. Joe missed the traditional Christmas dinner in 1987 and then stopped visiting altogether, although they occasionally talked on the phone. His friends thought he was overworked, but he never mentioned any symptoms of illness. Joseph Beam did not live to see the publication of his second book. A friend found his body on the floor of his bathroom of his Center City apartment on Christmas Eve, just a few days shy of his 34th birthday. He had been dead for several days. His death from AIDS shook the Philadelphia LGBTQ community to its core, and the news rippled across the country. Beam's close friend, poet and journalist Tommy Avacola Mecca, wrote a poem for Joe Beam. It begins, They found you dead on the floor of your bathroom, Three days dead, found you alone, Xmas Eve dead. When his mother started sorting through his papers, she discovered that he had made progress in his second book, and that he had many correspondences with the poet Essex Hemphill. She contacted Hemphill and invited him to complete the anthology. Hemphill moved in with Dorothy and Son, and Brother to Brother, New Writings by Black Gay Men was published in 1991. It chronicled the stories of black gay men living at the height of the AIDS epidemic. Joseph Beam was cremated. His remains placed on a shelf in a glass case in the chapel room, which sits on a hill behind the funeral home at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. His mother helped to establish the Joseph F. Beam Memorial Scholarship Fund for creative writing students at Temple University. In 1992, Dorothy Beam donated her son's personal papers to the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture in New York City. Joe's father, son Fairchild Beam, died in 2005 and his mother Dorothy Saunders Beam in 2018. Their cremains share the same shelf. Essex Hemphill died in Philadelphia at age 38 in 1995. I cannot find his final resting place. Joseph Beam, another black hero. The February mid-month podcast Biographical Bites from Bala, West Laurel Hill, stories number five, will be released on Friday the 11th of February 2022. We're continuing the theme of Black Trailblazers for Black History Month. I will tell you about civil rights leaders Sadie and Raymond Alexander. Raymond Pace Alexander, a prominent black attorney in Philadelphia who litigated civil rights cases for many years and a major contributor to the northern civil rights struggle. His wife, Sadie Tanner Mossell Alexander, was the first black American to achieve a Ph.D. in economics, and she was another pioneering civil rights activist. They are buried side by side at West Laurel Hill Cemetery. The March edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, will talk about five Worcester women you may not know. Sarah Logan Fisher Worcester, the matriarch of a large, flourishing family. Frances Ann Worcester, the woman who saved Old City and helped start the Philadelphia Orchestra. Mary Channing Worcester Worcester, who has a school name for her in the Poplar neighborhood. Sarah Logan Wister, star, president of Women's Medical College for 20 years, and Gertrude Smith Wister, late-life partner of John Caspar Wister, who was herself a noted horticulturalist. Earl Hill Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It's an easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny. SEPTA buses are 1 and 61. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street, although spaces are very, very limited, and street parking on Ridge is not recommended. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in ballack with plenty of parking available at the main entrance and at the Bell Tower. Your best bet for public transportation is to take the SEPTA Regional Rail to Maniunk, or one of the many buses to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue, then cross the Schuylkill River on the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge, Come up Riders Ferry Road to the entrance near the Pet cemetery. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from April to October and 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. November through March. The hours are short again right now. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, painters, bird watchers, nature buffs, tree and plant lovers, strollers, both the two-footed and four-wheeled variety variety. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open for historic tours. We expect you to follow current CDC guidelines regarding masks when you join us. And we still have pay-what-you-wish virtual tours via Zoom. Find out more at thelaurelhillcemetery.org or westlaurelhill.com. Here's more to satisfy your curiosity, Cemetery.blog, where you could read even more about interesting people. And if you follow us on Instagram, you get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities. And if that's not enough, check out the virtual tours I've done on YouTube. Laurel Hill Cemetery, Hotspots and Storied Plots, virtual tours number one and number two will give you an overview. And All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories video podcast, number one is about illustrator A.B. Frost and his family. Also podcast number 22 on ornithologists and entomologists is available as a video podcast on YouTube. Now once you've fallen in love with these hot spots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries, and you will have the opportunity for several members only special tours conducted each year, including some inside the mausoleum visits, and at least two members only podcasts of all bones considered Laurel Hill stories. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I'm Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine. at Temple University, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. You can contact me, joe at joelex.net. If you like the podcast, make sure that you evaluate it. Put in, put in a response. Mark, uh, especially the star system that Apple podcast has. It does keep raising us in the algorithms, the more people who like it. If You want to hear the references that I use for this podcast, stick around. So until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well. Almost all of the resources I used were newspapers of the day. Haverford College does have a lot of information about Ira Augustine. Reed's time with them on their website, including replicas of his correspondence, copies of his correspondence with the U.S. government during his time fighting off the accusations of communism. Denny Stokes Jr.'s story is partially told on the Penn State website and from various newspapers of the day. His sister, Olga, did a virtual meeting in 2020 exclusively for members of the Friends of Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery. She told many stories of Denny's upbringing. Marion Stokes' remarkable story was covered in many newspapers at the time of her death, including an excellent article by Jeff Gamage from the 9 December 2013 Philadelphia Inquirer. In 2019, a documentary movie called Recorder, the Marion Stokes Project, was released. It does an excellent job of telling her story. It includes interviews with her ex-husband Mickey, her son Michael, and with John Stokes family members. It's worth your time to seek it out. Joseph Beam's story comes mostly from published interviews with his mother and his own writings. Copies of both In the Life and Brother to Brother are available from wherever you purchase your books. See you at the cemetery. Until then, stay safe, stay well.